You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 158. On today's show, we discuss the Money Manual by Tanya Rapley. We discuss spending triggers, budgeting methods, generational wealth, turning financial tips and tricks into habits, the breakdown of what makes up a credit score, how finance is connected to the leading cause of suicide, building up savings for yourself versus paying off high interest debt, and easy areas to cut spending. Would a year without ad-free Spotify be such a bad thing? This is the Financial Independence Club brought to you in collaboration with Amy D. Lux and presented this month by Maitre Gopalakrishnan. Now there's video of this episode. A link to that is in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Welcome and thank you for being here for the first Financial Independence Club meeting of 2024. And this is the place where we learn things like if you want a job, apply for it, even if you don't meet all the requirements. Okay, do you hear me? Like, are you listening to me if you want the job? and you're looking for a job, just apply to any that you see that you want. And if self-doubt creeps in and you start talking yourself about even applying, hear me, Ethan Steimel, in your ear saying, apply for it, apply for the job. (laughs) Anyway, that's just a little bit of encouragement here. Um, And that tidbit was from the last Financial Independence Club meeting with Amy Pett uh, talking about the financial feminist. All right. I also want to say thank you to Amy for letting me take off the last half of 2023 from Artistic Finance and the Financial Independence Club so that I could go focus on being a dad. Um, But I'm excited. We're starting 2024 with a new push of Artistic Finance episodes. Uh, Nicole has started up the newsletter again. And so it's great to be back. And I'm super excited for today's conversation And with that, I now want to throw it over to today's host and the creator of Fight Club, Amy D. Lux. Hi, thanks for having me and hosting on Artistic Finance. Um, Just as a reminder to everyone, since it has been a minute since we've been here, the vision of the Fi Club is financial literacy for creatives, and our mission is to create a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel creatives and arts workers into financial security because everyone deserves prosperity. I'm so happy to be here and to be closing out 2023, bringing in 2024. And today we have brought on uh, Maya Trey to speak about the Money Manual, a practical money guide to help you succeed in your financial journey. Uh, by author Tanya Rapley, who is a nationally recognized millennial money expert and founder of the award-winning site MyFab Finance. She has graced the cover of Black Enterprise Magazine and was deemed the new face of wealth building. Her mission is to help millennial women break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck and own their power. So, my tray, Gopala Krishnan, you may remember from the famous artistic finance podcast 6K. We're back. All together here again. Maitre is the founder of Liquidify, an app and Colorado registered investment advisor, making the bond market more accessible for individual investors. Maitre, thanks for being here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy and Ethan. Really excited to have this discussion. Yeah. Take it away. What do you think about the book? Yeah. Um, 
I think that um, this book was extremely kind of practical and pragmatic and in the advice um, that it gave and had uh, a lot of great ways um, to not only set yourself on a financial path to success through um, these really easy digestible steps, but also provided um, workbooks and opportunities to actually write out and um, kind of document what your goals were um, and take those measurable steps to achieve them. So that aspect I, I really enjoyed um, about this book. And I think she did a good job covering um, kind of the main areas of what was necessary to achieve this financial stability um, that people were looking to seek uh, by reading this manual. So the, the biggest takeaway for me is there's no single approach um, for every individual to obtain financial success and freedom. Um, obviously, people start um, at different starting points. People have different circumstances, um, personal and professional and life changes. And so there's no clear single defined path for any one person to um, achieve you know, financial success, whatever that means for them, um, and financial freedom. But starting with clearly identifying current positions um, and goals, and, and then beginning with savings, um, and then paying down debt, ensuring that you're maintaining a budget um, and being really diligent about that process, uh, maintaining a good credit score if applicable and um, based on kind of where you're at and building up your your credit history um, and then taking a variety of other steps um, paying down student loans and things like this can help you to not only be financially stable for yourself um, and for your family now um, but also to hopefully pass on that wealth um, to the next generation this is something that the author touched upon um, in various parts of the book. Um, and I thought it was really interesting being able to set up the next generation in your family and in your support system for success is one of the best ways that we can, you know, allow the next generation or give a gift to the next generation um, to be able to prosper um, on their own terms and, and focus on allowing them to, to make the world a better place and to follow their dreams and their passions instead of being hampered by, by needing to build up that financial stability in the first place. So um, I thought that was you know, an interesting takeaway. Um, this was my overall summary, um, what I got out of out of the book. Um, and then I thought we can have a discussion about each of those chapters or those points and larger topics, savings, the debt, et cetera, and go from there. How does that sound, Amy? Is that uh, aligned with the takeaways that you got from, from reading the book? Or? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I really did appreciate, too, the fact that she did tie it into generational wealth. Uh, I thought, you know, a lot of times these financial independence guides will talk about finding your why and really understanding your why, which, of course, is like hugely important. But I think sometimes it can be hard to find because we're just so inundated in this capitalist society that like you work, you make money, you know, and uh, it can be kind of confusing to understand your why. I think especially if you're younger and you're still kind of like figuring out your path. My why is I need money. I have to pay rent or, you know, I have to pay bills and and that kind of thing. And for her to kind of give that context of thinking about generational wealth, um, I think is also unique in that, you know, she is a person of color. And this is a huge part of the conversation of the disparity between part of why financial independence is harder to achieve 
uh, for people of color and some of the barriers that there have been. And so contextualizing that way, I think, you know, maybe someone that is of white skin may not necessarily think of it that way. Maybe they already come from generational wealth or they just assume it because they haven't had the same kind of barriers. So I love that she brought that perspective to really make people think deeper about their why, you know, if they're already struggling with that concept or just to kind of give a broader context of some of the inequalities that we deal with in the finance world. Absolutely. And, and it's so true um, that financial stability doesn't happen overnight for an individual generation, but also multi-generationally, like, you know, it takes a prior generation helping the next generation kind of get to a certain point. Like now we see um, in the millennial generation, there are some parents that are, you know, helping to pay down payments on houses and things like this um, for their children. But that's not something that every parent or anyone, people, some people in a prior generation are able to afford. So building up that kind of system to be able to pay it forward to the next generation and help them in these circumstances where it's really challenging to, to be able to buy a house nowadays with the current market, things like that um, really do make a difference. And that is extended not it's not just within one person's lifetime it's it's over multiple generations that that wealth for for a family is developed so um yeah absolutely and, and that's also a point that later on like it was just a little tidbit in like the real estate like how to get a mortgage she was listing reasons for why you would want to get a house or get property or like why would you even want to do that instead of just renting and one of the reasons was because you're being priced out and you like want a place for your family to live and I thought like, oh, that's not really something that I've ever necessarily like thought about per se, but like that's really motivating <laughs> of like why you might want to buy versus rent. And then also I think in the beginning of the book somewhere she had a slogan called, we want to create legacies, not liabilities. I just think that's a cool, a fun catchphrase <laughs> because I know Nicole and I sometimes like when we've had a hard day at work or we're really stressed out or whatever, we're like, are we having fun? Like, what is the point? Why are we doing, why do we go to work every day? Like, why do we have this job? <laughs> and then we'll be like, uh, legacy, we need, uh, Theo needs something. <laughs> so it is spread over generations. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out to my tray of like, it is all step because my father-in-law, he says that a lot. But anytime you like see somebody with wealth or something or a business owner or something backtracking, like how did they get there? Because like people can like start from nothing, but it's hard. <laughs> and so if you want your children or you want other people to be well off, like you have to become responsible and get your stuff together and grow wealthy and help them. Definitely. But also I think inculcating those um, that financial discipline to the next generation, along with being able to pass along um, some source of wealth to them to be able to jumpstart their life. That's important as well. And so I, I really appreciated the way that she laid out those very concrete steps that one can take to achieve that level of stability, in addition to maybe whatever the baseline circumstances that they're starting out with is that I think are applicable to basically any situation where this is of where you're starting out. And, and also before we get into like the sections of the book, I do want to say that I loved this book because there was no pretension in it whatsoever. Like it really is like a manual. Here's the information you need to know. It's like all the excess stuff is cut out. It's really like just the information. There was just no pretension. Like I didn't feel any judgment. So I loved it for that. Yeah, she really did emphasize that on a number of occasions. Like 
if you have a bad credit score or if you are starting from negative, you know, don't feel bad. This is not uh, unusual. Um, It can be very normal. And she just really, I felt like every time she was talking about something that, uh, you know, you would probably just innately feel shame for, uh, she was right there saying, don't feel shamed about this. Like you're reading this manual, you're taking steps, like it's about moving forward and not like getting kind of frozen in that shame. Yeah. And she even started off with an exercise, you know, encouraging readers to do that, to write out where they were currently at. Um, and reflect on the emotions that they felt when looking at those those things that they wrote down um, and ensuring they were really conscientious of those and that they were balancing out, you know, the things that they felt like they could improve upon within their financial life, so to speak, and, and balance those things with what they could be proud of having accomplished to this point. That was really pertinent to be able to reflect on, okay, like there are some things that I can be proud of, even though I have a ways to go. Um, and this manual is going to help me work through um, those aspects. There's still some things that that I should be able to take pride in at the moment. And I do have a starting point. And, and there is, you know, an opportunity to grow from here. But I have done something to better myself financially. I thought that was great, that initial exercise. So the first chapter after the introduction um, about reflecting on where you're at, um, where you want to be, um, and creating those goals. Um, so first it was saving um, and then paying off your debt um, and the approaches to that, putting together a budget and then how to think about a credit score and um, what one might do to improve their credit score and what the context of credit scores is. And then some additional kind of habits, for example, paying off student loans is something she talked about extensively in that final chapter, but it was kind of a, an assortment um, chapter um, at the end and, and then a final reflection. So those were that's how she broke it down for, for providing this guide or manual. You know, and I want to mention too, like in the budget section, I don't think I've seen this very often. Like, you know, obviously people talk about budget a lot when they're talking about personal finance, but I hadn't really seen anyone break down the different kinds of budget you could have. And I thought that that was really enlightening because it's really not one size fits all, uh, which she does drive home in a lot of ways. But some of those budgets, you know, I hadn't even really thought about or been aware of. I mean, I've done a monthly budget out of probably habit uh, more than any of them, but she had a few others that I thought were also really interesting. Yeah, yeah. For the budget section, she, yeah, she mentioned the monthly budget, a weekly budget. She also specified where it made sense to apply which type of budget. So if you're paid weekly um, or hourly or something like this, a weekly budget might make more sense. Um, whether, whereas if you're like a W-2 employee, um, you're getting um, your checks either monthly or bi-weekly or something like this, a monthly budget might make more sense. Um, I liked the zero-based budget. That was interesting, um, where all dollars are being allocated somewhere specific. Obviously, it doesn't need to be going to spending money and and sending all your income out the door. There are categories that you can put into that budget for, you know, I want to put this um, this amount every month um, or every couple of weeks or whatever into um, a savings account to build up an emergency fund, or I want to put this amount of money into a Roth IRA or something like this. But just having a place for every dollar, um, I felt like an interesting concept. And I think there were a couple others as well. But yeah, I was going to say the percentage one where it's 50%, 30%, 20%, where 50% 
of your income you use to pay all your necessary expenses. 20% is for savings and then 30% is like flexible. What she called once, but like, I totally disagree. I think that you could probably pick whatever percentage you want. I would more aggressively put 30% in a savings and 20% in a once or more because I think savings and debt, savings and debt and investment, they're all different buckets, but I would want to save more, you know, especially if you have debt. I'd want to spend on debt, paying off debt before I, you know, go to more concerts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I think you can adjust the percentage, but I actually uh, responded well to that one because that's sort of what Nicole and I do. Like, it's sort of like we have the percentage, like the zero dollar one um, accounting for everything. I think that's like maybe a great starting point for somebody. Like if you like really want to get organized, but I just, I just don't can't do that. That's my truth. I'm telling myself <laughs> like, um, that just sounds crazy to me because I, I get like so anal retentive about things. So that one I can't even deal with. I'm super into the zero base, giving every dollar a job. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a neat concept. Um, and it's something I had heard about, but I think she laid out really well. And to that end, the point about having different envelopes for different, um, types of things, obviously, you know, we're not all carrying around that much cash anymore, but something equivalent to that where you're allocating a certain budget for very specific things like uh, this is my budget for concerts or this is my budget for something else. And once I zero out of this amount, there's no more I can do um, in this category. But if you're able to save in that category, you're able to roll that money into the budget for the next month um, and have an additional amount to spend. Thinking about budgets as essentially envelopes of cash allocated for different areas uh, was, was really interesting. I, I, that, yeah, that's a method that my sister actually did. It's like a good, I mean, it's a way to like not go over for sure. And I will say that Nicole and I, sometimes when we travel like out of the country, we will get local currency and we, for a small amount of time, when we're in that country, we're doing the envelope method because <laughs> we like separate out by days and we're like, okay, but if we save more in a day, then we can put it to the next day. So it's definitely a good method of like knowing about your money and knowing when you're over or under. I've always wanted to try it, but, uh, you know, it is kind of impractical with online shopping and things like that. But I liked how she actually approached that by saying, you know, you can still allocate for your uh, online things, but then, you know, maybe you just use cash envelopes for a, a couple of specific goals, like your entertainment stuff or, you know, your groceries or things where um, using cash wouldn't be as much of a barrier. Um, and I've also seen a suggestion, I think she mentions it in the book too, about getting prepaid cards. Um, so that way it's it's like cash in that it's finite. Um, but it's still a digital card that you can use online or, you know, at a machine at a store or something. She mentioned prepaid cards a lot in the book. Um, I have a phobia of those because when I worked at McDonald's in the drive-thru, I would like people would come through with those cards and they were like so difficult to use. So I've like never wanted them ever in my life. But maybe that's different now. When, when did you work at the McDonald's? <laughs> 2006, 2007, 2005. And what, what stage of your life was that? Uh, high school into college. So we have this in common now, Ethan, because my very first job was at a McDonald's when I was a, when I was a young teenager in high school. <laughs> I wasn't at the drive-thru, so I didn't have to deal with the cards. Oh, I was everywhere. I was overnight. Um, <laughs> but I will say, like, if I were going to go envelope method in my life, I think that I would do it like multiple bank accounts. I think I would do a checking account with a debit card 
and then like know that I could use the debit card, but when it was out, then like I'm out of that money for the month or whatever. That's how I think I would do it if I were to do it. But the prepaid cards, I'm like, that sounds like horrible. Do people really do that? I think the other thing that she warns on the prepaid cards is that they can have really extensive fees. If you go over or you like break the maximum, you can get yourself into trouble with them. So you have to be really aware. Um, I do. I like your idea of uh, having the different accounts. As long as, you know, whatever someone's comfortable with, if you have to have a, a higher awareness because with cash, and I think the reason why the original cash envelope system is so successful for so many people is that, and you know, I grew up with cash, like I'm old enough that we used to exclusively use cash for things. And it's really hard to not know where you're at. The pile gets smaller, you know, as the month goes on or whatever. And so you have a higher awareness of how quickly money is leaving your hands. Like whenever I get cash, I'm like, where did that go already? You know, but when we pay for something with a card, it's like infinite. And that's kind of the problem with credit cards. It can lead you to believe that you're never running out of money. But and then she talks about that as well. Like when you're using credit cards, and obviously, this is where a lot of people get in trouble, because then you're paying interest fees and late fees and things like that. Oh, well, I, I think this was in the budgeting section. It was talking about triggers. It was a list of triggers. And I wanted to skip over this section because I was like, no, 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 I don't get triggered and buy things and spend lots of money. <laughs> but that's a lie. I do. It's true. I just don't admit it. But I'm just going to read this list of triggers because I thought it was good. Stress, grief, boredom, anger, happiness, lack of rest, hunger, sickness, job loss, vacations, celebrations like births, graduations, reunions, and discounts. These are all triggers that can lead you to spend more money. And this year, 2023, so many of those triggers have happened to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because sometimes I'll be triggered. And it's usually around food for me. I don't know why. And like, I mean, like in the grocery store, weirdly, I'm like putting things in the cart that I like totally don't need and we're never going to need. You know, being aware of the triggers, like, because sometimes I'll be in process and I'll be aware that I'm being triggered, but I still go through with it. Because like, there's just some emotional, like, whatever, like, bad example, but like the giant tub of popcorn that I put in the cart that like, we don't need don't want I don't even know. So I'm like, sort of aware of it. So then I'm like, well, I don't anyway, more of the story is it's how to be aware of it and then not take on it. I don't know. Anyway, awareness is like a step. And I feel like having this list was helpful. Because like job loss, I mean, that's going to be a trigger. And how do you deal with that? I mean, everyone's going to deal with that in a different way, but they're going to deal with it some way. Yeah, it's challenging. I think for me, the approach I try to take is when I'm setting uh, goals or something like this in my business, I tell myself, okay, when I get to this certain point, like X number of customers or something like this, then I will make this purchase that I had wanted to make, but I'm putting it kind of on the back burner. But that's a much more, I guess, I have planned that <laughs> out ahead of time, that this is something I'll reward myself with when I achieve that, this goal that I've set out. And so I try to keep that in the back of my mind, like those goals that I've set out and, and just make sure that I'm disciplined in, in not going forward with a purchase that I wanted to make um, before I reached that goal. But it's it's challenging, like when you're wanting to celebrate a small win um, and, and that goal seems a little bit far away. It's like, oh, OK, I have to restrain myself and, and not you know go ahead and make this purchase. But I think just being cognizant that those are triggers that exist. 
um, and really reflecting on on all of those purchases you're making that are non-necessary is an exercise in and of itself in financial discipline. So um, She does mention that as well. Learning to think in the moment, my greater goal is this, is this purchase getting me closer to that goal? And if not, then why am I trying to have this now? So if you've planned a big purchase in the future, you know, like a travel or, you know, some piece of tech or whatever it is, you can look at this smaller thing, like buying this jumbo sized popcorn and say, is this extra $8 going to, you know, impact my ability to, you know, get the really fancy popcorn when I go <laughs> to Christmas time and bring it to, you know, bad example, perhaps I'm terrible at metaphors, but <laughs> Um, the other thing that I try to do um, when I feel triggered is I've started to learn to try to have an alternative or a substitute. If I'm feeling like I want to do something or purchase something, it's kind of like when you're trying to quit smoking, for example, the craving is only going to last a few minutes. So if you can talk to yourself during that time till you get past that three minute mark or whatever it is, then you can move on to the next thing. So you're going to have like sunflower seeds or a lollipop instead. It'll get you through that craving. So the same thing with purchasing, like if I'm buying something because I'm bored or I'm stressed, what can I give myself as an alternative? You know, if I'm stressed, then sure, we should talk about, you know, let me write a list of things of that I could do like a 10 minute meditation or burn a candle or some incense or something to get my mind off of that. And then it's just like a craving, like it can pass. Also, I feel like Nicole and I are both not impulsive people. So I don't want people to think I'm like crazy. (laughs) Everything triggers me all the time. Like discounts do not trigger us. I used to be a discount person because I grew up in such extreme poverty that I just felt like anytime I was at the dollar store or thrift shopping, that like everything was a bargain. And I think I was like making up for such lack that I had growing up that, you know, all of those things seemed worthy. And then it wasn't until later, you know, obviously I became a minimalist and like all of these things. And I was just, I would be cleaning up or I'd be moving. And I'm like, why do I have this thing? You know, it's just like, it wasn't actually bringing value, but you know, there's a lot of reasons why people have these triggers and, you know, for some people it is going to be something related to their childhood or maybe something subconscious. Um, So you do have to really get deep with yourself and figure out what your motivations are. And something that um, I don't know was extensively discussed in the book, but has struck me as the trigger for myself is wanting to reciprocate in social situations. Like, for example, as a startup founder, I have a lot of coffee meetups and the person across from me is usually going out and, you know, buying their coffee and buying pastry or whatever it is. Um, And I feel like because they've done that, I have the obligation to do the same thing, to uh, conform to, I don't know, the, the social situation in front of me. So I've tried to be a lot more conscientious of that and find ways to refrain from, you know, making that additional purchase just because another person in in that social setting is, is doing the same thing. And so in, in general, I actually tend towards, you know, to Ethan's point, like, I'm not very impulsive at spending. And it actually was was to a point where I I needed to tell myself, no, it's okay. Like it's okay to reward yourself <laughs> um when when some you know goes right and, and you want to go out and purchase something. But 
this is something what I think I, I get influenced by, you know, the people around me a lot. Um, and so to that end, um, this was helpful in making me more cognizant um, that. So that's so funny. Also, Nicole's the same way. I'm always like, I'm the person who was like, go get the Starbucks because she's like, no, I can't because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, you can. Like, <laughs> like, it's not doesn't make you an impulsive person or whatever. And also, like, you'll enjoy it. Like, go do it. So I'm encouraging impulse a lot. Um, does anybody want to talk about the credit? Because that's my least favorite topic of all time. But it was in the book. That was interesting. And when uh, we're talking about um, having a budget or different accounts or something, the author was talking about credit limits and your credit being lowered if you go over a certain percentage of your credit line spending. Um, and she was arguing for, for people to spend, you know, in general, 20% or less of what their allocated credit line was. And I thought that could be a, a way um, to, to set a budget um, to start out when you're primarily engaging in digital spending or you're not using cash necessarily to spend is having that limitation on your credit line spending and being cognizant of how close you're getting to that percentage. Um, and then trying to lower that, you know, more and more over time if you tend to um, make impulse purchases um, or be a, a, an extensive spender. So that was something interesting. But yeah, credit is it's really weird. And there's like so many different things that contribute to it. Many that I think aren't really made that public, um, probably to the benefit of credit card companies um, and credit rating agencies. It was interesting that that shouldn't be um, as significant a stressor as people make it out to be. Which which I love that because I, you know, I hear what I want to hear. Um, but I did love that point where she was like, credit is not, you don't have to have credit. You don't have to have credit cards, um, which before I started this podcast, I thought was impossible. But then we've had like three or four guests who don't have credit cards. I don't think I'd ever known somebody without a credit card. <laughs> But I appreciated that point of like, you don't have to have the credit. And I will say credit is also a weird thing because we have done at least three episodes on credit and credit cards. 43 is a specific one with Mark Santos. He was trying to give a positive spin on like how, to, you know, these helpful things. There are some things that make sense um, in terms of how they contribute to your credit score. Like obviously paying bills on time is something um, that we want to practice um, doing on a regular basis. And it should be, you know, a core financial habit. Yeah, if, if your credit score declines um, because you're consistently not paying bills on time, um, that makes sense. Closing accounts um, seemed a little bit of an odd thing to me. Like, oh, okay, like I opened this credit card, you know, 10 years ago or something, and I barely used this card. And maybe the card was allocated for a specific store or a specific company. Um, and you just signed up for that card because this was an early experience in building credit. Um, and now it's not something you need or use that much anymore. For me, I, I like to be able to just close it, do away with it, not have to think or worry about it, but having to keep that open just for the sake of it affecting your credit score. You know, like I don't necessarily understand all the, the reasons why there are certain things that contribute to credit negatively. Yeah. And, you know, I do obsess over my credit score and I love it in, in some ways because I feel accomplished. I've come such a far away. I mean, I defaulted on my student loans back in the day. I had a 300 credit score. Now I'm over 800. So for me, I kind of, it became a game and so I'm fine with it, but it is really frustrating because there's no 
there is no way to control it. There's no way to understand it. Um, you know, like I haven't done anything really different this year. And every month it goes up or down five points or eight points. And there's no logical explanation for it. Um, so that is really frustrating. But I did like in the book where she breaks down in the credit section, she because like it's so, so mystical, like what makes your credit score, but she actually breaks down percentages. Like I know the list of things like payment history, debt to credit ratio, length of credit. We know that these are items that affect our credit, but I've never seen a percentage breakdown. So she does break down what percentage each of those, how much percent it affects your credit score. And I thought that that was really insightful. I guess it can help you to be more aware if you are trying to raise your credit score, if you're coming from an unstable place that you can kind of put more energy into those sections accordingly. Um, but I did think that that was pretty unusual. It was very helpful to bring some transparency to the entire process and um, where it feels pretty opaque um, on the outset. Yeah. I was like, how does she know that? And we don't all know that. Like, where? why don't we know this? <laughs> Absolutely. To that point, and segueing to the paying off debt part, um, I feel like there were just a lot of interesting points that she made or tips that she had that in my years of adulting <laughs> um, and, and doing things with money like I have never come across um, before that were really interesting. Um, so like some of her points about um, the ways that you can pay off debt and some of the approaches that you can take to to get some forgiveness on, on parts of your debt. There are a lot of people that are just sitting there probably afraid um, of the debt that they've accumulated and not really knowing what actionable measures they could take um, to address that and, you know, thinking that these agencies are always going to rule kind of against them, but there may be opportunities to to find compromise, pay a certain amount for you know, X number of months, um, like nine months or something like this, off of that debt, and then um, almost kind of reset the process in some some shape or form um, that can alleviate some of that stress um, that comes with having debt. So just a lot of points that she made, I was like, never even heard about this before and um, this is this is really cool and I think more people should know that this is an option I've like I mentioned I had defaulted on my school loans back in the day and um and luckily um they reached out to me and offered a rehab loan rehabilitation program but I hadn't heard of it either and I was so scared that I you know they're different depending on which one but you know this one was you have to pay on time every month for nine months, and then they'll completely wipe the the bad history off your credit history. Um, and I was so afraid I wasn't going to be able to make it, but they made it like a really reasonable amount based on what I was making at the time. And it was more about just like the consistency. You know, they were willing to lower the amount just to kind of get me back on track. Um, and that was probably the really early start of my like financial journey was because somebody showed me that there was a way to like fix my mistakes. I think that it's really important that we share um, that more broadly because people don't realize that there is help. Well, and I also think it was part of the lack of pretension too, because um, there was the explanation that when you have racked up so much debt, et cetera, and debt collectors are coming after you or people are calling you, trying to get you to pay it, 
that you can restructure it or you can negotiate it. The explanation was whatever your debt is to, those people have sold off that debt to debt collectors, but they've sold it for like one penny for every dollar you owed. They've sold that to the debt collector. So the debt collector gets to make up whatever difference they can get out of you. That's the profit that they make. So they may not need the whole other 99 cents or the whole dollar from you. They may be happy with like 20 cents. It's not like you're not paying your debts, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Like this stuff happens. It's it's like how capitalism works. Like this is a structure and you're just fitting into the structure. So don't be afraid to you know address the issue, address and negotiate it and talk to them. Pe- people can help you, but you have to like address the issue. And they're incentivized by that short term because, you know, that debt may be taken and sold to somebody else um, to a different company in the future. And so their incentive is to get what they can um, in that period of time that they're holding your debt, um, which means you actually have some degree of negotiating power and to say, you know, yeah, I will pay something and I'll be consistent about it. But, you know, I need a, a bit of a break um, to be able to pay this off in its entirety. And that short term mindset that they probably have, you know, having that debt for a a fixed period of time could be something favorable for you on someone trying to climb out of a potentially pretty deep hole. So um, I thought that was a great point. It it also reminds me of a John Oliver episode (laughs) where he bought like $1.3 billion of student or um, medical debt and like paid it off because he bought it from like, it had been sold so many times that he bought it for like $100. I mean, it's exaggerating. I don't know what the numbers were. It's kind of wild that they can sell it for less than it's worth. So therefore, they don't really need as much as they charged in the first place. <laughs> but yet, you know, so many people struggle with debt so deeply emotionally that it's one of the leading causes of suicide. I did not know that debt was the leading cause of suicide. I did not know that. And that stat was from 2016. So, you know, maybe it's changed, but I somehow I doubt it. But that like... I feel like that's something we should know. Right. Because there's all like we were talking about before, there's all this shame and, you know, people keep this stuff uh, often behind closed doors and things like that. And I mean, I just find it so mind blowing that they can sell it to a debt collector for pennies on the dollar. Like it didn't actually impact their business that they're not going out of business. Right. So they can sell it off because they don't want to deal with it anymore. Meanwhile, somebody's life is on the line. I yeah. mean, late stage capitalism, friends. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah. To this point, um, I wanted to get all of your thoughts on um, what she mentioned about prioritizing, and maybe I didn't interpret it um, the same way, but prioritizing um, building up savings versus paying off debt. I initially, coming into this book, figured that if you have debt, especially when it's high interest, um, because of not only you know, the financial risk you're putting yourself in, but also the emotional burden um, you carry around when you have um, something like deep credit card debt uh, or something like that, um, that it behooves you to prioritize paying that off. But she had actually uh, mentioned a couple of times in the book that things were um, like building up an emergency fund, building up those savings were in the long term going to be a higher priority uh, than paying off debt. Um, I don't know if I interpreted it a different way than both of you, but I, I was curious. No, I, that's how that's how I interpreted it. And I loved it because I remember when I was in college and I was like trying to get good with money and reading financial advice. It, it was like, it was like, do this, 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 and then your retirement account or then savings. And I 
ignored all that advice thinking that I was doing it wrong because I was like, no, I have to like have some savings or like, what about an emergency or this? Over the course of all these podcasts, there have been some things um, that have said similar things of like saving for yourself first. And I think it's really important because it's empowering to you because you then have a little bit of control. Whereas if you're just paying off the debt first, even though logically that makes more sense, it's not helping you like psychologically. I mean, it's not giving you like a little bit of day-to-day freedom, like a little breathing room. I like the savings first. Related but unrelated, she had mentioned a couple times in the book about Profit First, which is another book that we should probably read. (laughs) But I had a guest on the podcast, uh, I forget the episode, they were a Profit First like financial advisor. And the idea is that like when you get your income, you take your profit first, like you take your savings, like you take the part that you're going to keep first before then paying off all your debts and paying off all your overhead and all that. Which So it's like flipping the common advice in a way, but those two things are connected. Oh, it was episode 117 with Abby Johnson. That's what it was. (laughs) Um, But I loved it because I just never have thought about it that way. I've always thought like it all comes in and then you pay all the things and then sort of the leftover you do that. Long story short, I loved the savings first because I think that is so empowering to you, the individual. I would say, yeah, save $1,000 first before you pay off your $1,000 of the student loans. Because in my brain, the $1,000 of student loans is going to be there forever. And yes, it's accruing interest, and that's going to hurt you in the long run. But the $1,000 that you have in your con- control to like take care of an emergency or to, I don't know, do something, to me, that's more important for you, the individual. Because if you could die, <laughs> and the debt's still going to be there, who cares? <laughs> anyway, all right, I'm rambling. No, but I mean, a lot of people in the in the FI space do recommend um, even like a thousand dollar savings and then paying off debt and then doing a larger like six month savings or, you know, a year long savings at that point. Part of the reason why is because um, if you put all of your money towards your let's say it's credit card debt and then your brakes go out on your car, but you don't have any cash to pay for that. Well, now you've got to pay get a cash advance from your credit card or payday loan or something like that. So for people that are really early on in their financial independence journey, it is a way, like you said, to be empowering because now you're seeing that you actually have money of your own in your account. But also it's just kind of practical because if you don't have an emergency savings, then you're going to go back to the you know, the sources of money that got you into trouble in the first place. And so in that case, it can start to become this endless cycle where, well, now I'm paying off this emergency and I'm putting all of my money to that. Oh, but then this other thing came up and you kind of, it makes it harder to get out. So I think if you can at least get that first thousand dollars saved and, and teach yourself that I am capable of saving money, even if it's a small percentage, even if you're using acorns and just rounding up your purchases or whatever it is, 10 bucks a week or 20 bucks a month, whatever it is, just getting yourself used to setting aside that money and and learning that you are capable of of doing that and finding like room in your in your budget that you can start to save. Amy, you make a really good point because I when I read this statement initially, I was like flat out disagreed because you know when you're having a credit card, a debt on a credit card that's accruing, you know, 15, 20% plus interest, incredibly high interest. And that compounds over time, that number increases pretty quickly. Whereas when you're putting money into a savings account, the amount of interest you're earning on a traditional savings account 
is tiny, honestly, like a checking account. And you need to have it in an account that's very, very readily accessible um, if it's an emergency fund. But your point, if an emergency does happen, people who are just starting to build up their savings or just starting to get out of debt could very easily fall back into that hole. I think is a really astute one. Um, and I didn't think about it that way. So that cycle can can happen. You, you never know when an emergency is going to happen. That's why it's an emergency. You can fall back into those patterns really quickly and put yourself way further back than if you focused on building up the funds to be able to pay off that emergency up front in the first place. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that point of view. Um, can I just random thoughts that I had from the book <laughs> that I, they don't really fit anywhere? But one is like there was a bunch of tips for like cutting expenses. And normally I ignore all these because I'm like, I'm already doing all those or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there was one that stuck out to me, which was turn the water heater down a degree or two. And I don't know why, but I was like, that's never crossed my mind. But like, that seems like a logical thing. Like, I, it's totally random. And I don't know how much savings that would be over the course of a year. But one degree down, I mean, I wouldn't even notice the difference. I think there are, um, if you Google that, I, I've seen numbers. And I, in fact, I think I've even gotten in a newsletter from my electric company, what your savings could look like if you did something like that, or what are the other kind of like energy saving tips? Like turn lights off when you're leaving the room. Yeah, things like that. You can save $48 a year. And I mean, it does add up though, especially if you're pinching pennies and you really are living paycheck to paycheck. That $48, you know, can be towards your emergency fund or towards that debt. Everybody, especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck, feels like I don't have anything to spare. Like, how am I possibly going to save money or how am I going to get out of this hole? You know, that's why the the budget, whatever budget you choose, it's really more about an awareness of how much you spend and understanding what your lifestyle costs. So that you can evaluate your values and determine, do I really need to buy this X, Y, Z, or can I save an extra $15, $20, $50 and put it towards you know, my financial freedom? And Amy, to your point, I love going on the Reddit financial planning and um, investing kind of channels. Um, it gives me a good pulse of like, where many people are um, in terms of their saving and investing processes. And it helps me in my business to be able to better serve my clients. Um, and I find there's so many people that actually are earning like very, very decent wages. They're making more than enough coming in the door that if they were really cognizant about what their budget is and where they're putting all of their money, they could be putting a significant amount away and have a really robust emergency fund and all of this. Um, and they're simply like, okay, well, this is my rent or my mortgage or whatever. And this is, you know, like those bigger expenses, they can very clearly track. And then there's an additional four or $5,000 a month. And they have no idea where this money goes to. And maybe even those, you know, those little things that seem like, oh, like you're just pinching pennies here and there could actually add up. Um, to be pretty significant expenses. My hunch is that a lot of those tend to be like subscriptions or getting out or those kinds of things, but even little ways that you can optimize, um, you know, create additional savings uh, in your house uh, maintenance and things like this. I think they really add up. Being cognizant of that um, and documenting those things can make such a huge difference in the long term, even if it doesn't seem like it on a month-to-month basis. Yeah, when I first started 
looking at my spending in the early days of mint.com, which is now going away. That's a whole other topic. Um, but it really enlightened me to how much I was spending because I always considered myself frugal because I, I grew up so poor and I put myself through college and I never had money as a resource. And so I just assumed that I wasn't spending any money and I thought that I was frugal. And then I started seeing all these expenditures, how, how they were actually adding up at the end of the month. Um, and this is when I still had credit card debt and paid on the minimum and just didn't have any real awareness of, of my actual spending habits. And I was stunned to find out how much I spent. I just was like, whose accounts are these? Like, this cannot be me. That's why I will always tell people, I know you may think that you don't have any room to save, but I promise that you do. And you probably have areas where you are just not, you're on, you're on autopilot. Something is getting spent where it doesn't really need to be based on your own values. I was just listening to another friend of mine's podcast. Justin David Carl is from my, uh, my FI mastermind in the Bay area. He has a podcast called fit rich life. And he was just talking with someone as well about this topic. And they were, he said, I know um, a couple of people that are making like seven, $800,000 a year. And when we sit down and look at their budget, they're like, oh, I spent $7,000 on eating out. They're making that much money, but they're still living paycheck to paycheck. And they're like, I don't know, how could I save any money? Well, you know, maybe you cook a couple meals and you spend $4,000 on eating out instead of $7,000. Like, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. Like, people that make all different kinds of amounts of money are not always saving and are not always investing and are not always aware. So the word budget, it's not like a bad word. It doesn't mean that you have to be completely deprived or anything like that. It's more just making buckets that make sense to what your values are and what you want and need in your life. And that you're not unconsciously spending on things that you don't actually care about, or you're just keeping up with the Joneses, or you forgot you had that subscription, but you never really used that service and kind of things like that. I've told Ethan this, but I am like very anti-subscription. I try to limit, like I know exactly, I can count on one hand how many subscriptions I have because it terrifies me that, you know, you sign up for a subscription and your money, you know, you're even if $10 a month is going out the door every month and you may not necessarily be using that actively. And that's an area where I try to exercise a lot of discipline, making sure I don't sign up for any of those subscriptions um, and cancel them as soon as I feel like I, I'm not using them um, to my full ability. Yeah, because there's so many now and they just add up. They do. My friend, I was with a friend of mine and, and we were, I put it on a Spotify playlist. We were hanging out, working out. A commercial came on and she was like, oh, you don't have the paid version? She was kind of offended. And I was like, no, I'd rather invest my money. And she's like, Amy, you can afford a Spotify subscription. And I was like, I can, but I can also afford a Hulu subscription and a Netflix subscription and an Amazon subscription and all of them. And then the next thing you know, it's $200, $250 a month, whatever. I usually will just turn the volume down for 30 seconds. You know, it's not that much of an inconvenience to me that it's worth 10 or $15 a month. I know it adds up and I'd rather put that money somewhere else. I want to say that I too could count my subscriptions on one hand because I have a phobia of them as well. But we did the LDI episode and we were talking about like the professional software that we own. And I realized that I might have professional softwares that are like don't fit on one hand. So next 6K, I'm going to get a list of all my subscriptions because in my brain, I'm like, it's just three, but I bet it's like 12. That'd be a good exercise for all of us, probably. Yeah, for sure. And then the eating out too, like 
Oh my goodness. Um, I saw a lot of my friends like in school and in grad school of work, et cetera, that just defaulted to eating out, like going out with their colleagues for lunch and getting that $15 meal. They're so expensive nowadays. Um, and, and doing this every day and not realizing where their money was going. Um, and so I try to be really conscientious about only spending, you know, a meal a week or something like this going out. And I mentioned the coffee thing, like, uh, that that can really add up very quickly if you're going and stopping by for coffee every day. I will say, being a new parent, we do DoorDash. There is, I think there's something great about DoorDash, which is it gives you a receipt before you hit pay, and it shows you all the things you're paying for. And it gets so frustrating because it's like, how are we ordering two burgers and it's, you know, $80 or something? The delivery fees are up. <laughs> on DoorDash, yeah. I appreciate DoorDash because sometimes it's like so overly expensive that I'm like, this is a good like reminder to me to not do this so much. I struggle sometimes with like Instacart. I just quit my Instacart. Instacart has really helped me to not have to go to the grocery store and I can get whatever I want from whichever store I want. And it's been a real value add in my life, especially being a digital nomad and traveling and being able to get that service anywhere. But not only do they charge the fees, but they also, the groceries themselves have a higher cost. And so I finally decided that I was like, this year, I'm going to go back to going to the grocery store. But it's really easy to justify as I'm working at a startup and I have all these volunteer things that I do and I'm really busy. So if I were to hire an assistant, like it's not really that much more than what I would pay an assistant or it's probably a lot less than I would pay an assistant, right? So I was like, I'm just going to have to just go to the store once or twice a week. But I'm already mourning like the loss of my Instacart subscription because it's so convenient. But once I learned that the groceries themselves also cost more, which has been confirmed three different times this year where they accidentally left the receipt in the bag and I got to see the real prices, I was like, man, I'm really overpaying for this service and I just need to be more organized and then I can go to the store myself. That's awesome. Because when we were in New York, we used to use Fresh Direct a little bit, but we were very aware that it was overpriced. Um, so we would like only do it certain times. But since we now live in a place with where we have a car and we, we can go to the giant, giant store that's just 10 minutes away, <laughs> we like, I haven't even considered Fresh Direct or Instacart because I'm like, I can, I can do it myself. <laughs> Exactly. I don't want to wrap us up, but I have to head out soon. So can we have any final thoughts? So the author's takeaway um, that I think is great, you know, she's presented a lot of really great habits, recommendations um, for getting on that path um, to financial stability, but ultimately implementation, putting these practices into action um, is the way that we're really going to set ourselves um, on that path to success. Um, so um, she talked in, in her closing notes about actually going forward and implementing um, some of these practices and really making them habits. Um, I think that's something she emphasized throughout um, is once you make something a habit, uh, just putting away the $100 a month or paying off you know, this amount of your debt and, and making that a regular um, occurrence. Um, I think that's that's how to kind of set yourself on that right trajectory. Um, so that was my kind of takeaway from here. Um, take all these recommendations um, and start putting them to get use and, and start seeing those successes um, incrementally, but seeing that over time. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that she had a lot of great tips and tricks for um, taking financial independence into your own hands and a lot of very practical steps to get there. And, you know, I would add that 
the reason we do this is personal education, financial education. It may feel really overwhelming and overbearing if you're at the beginning of your journey. And I know for me, I thought finance was not for me. I didn't think it was something I would really ever be able to understand. I didn't have a lot of education about it when I was younger. And I kind of just grabbed a book as a a last minute thing when I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting older and I don't have anything. And how am I going to figure this out? And I had a real like immediate transition from that first book I read. So um, anytime you can pick up a book like this one, it will help demystify money and make it easier to move on. And then just you slowly build financial resilience between learning more, consistently saving a portion of your income, no matter how small. Uh, Those regular savings can create a safety net for unexpected expenses and then create a path for long-term financial success. So, you know, start small, but start today if you haven't already. And then if you're on on the path, just keep going and know that it just is going to exponentially keep getting better. And I also just want to say that the book, what I liked about the book was it really was a manual. And so like, I think sometimes like we can just go to the internet machine and like find any answer. So it's like, oh, I don't need a book that says all this. There was a really just good section on like purchasing a car thoughts and all that. And then the same thing with purchasing a home or renting. I would recommend people get this book just to have around because sometimes when it's all like on the internet, we, I don't know, we get, it's like analysis paralysis. And I feel like just having this book to be like, oh, pretty much everything is covered in this book let me just go to this chapter, I think is like a handy thing to have. Um, And also Amy, well, and Maitre, (laughs) I went and found the section that has the credit score percentages. So I just feel like that's something good that we could say because it was so laid out so well. So of the 100% that makes up your credit score, payment history is 35%. Debt to credit ratio or utilization is 30%. Length of credit history is 15%. New credit accounts and inquiries are 10%. And then diversity of credit is 10%. So that's all the things. So the big ones are the debt to credit limit that my trade was talking about, staying under the 20% of usage. Um, and then your payment history, making the payments. Those are the big things. Okay, so uh, actually, wait. I just wanted to share a couple financial um, successes that uh, just as we're starting 2024, looking back on 2023, um, I just want to share. And one is that I now teach at Arizona State University and I'm in their like 401k plan. Anyway, so I just looked and I now have $1,600 saved in their retirement plan. It doesn't sound like a lot, but I literally never thought about that money. Like it went out of the paycheck. They just did it automatically. They're matching a percentage. Like it's out of my control in a way, but it's just happening. So this is like exciting. This has never happened for me in my life before. That's awesome. And then the other thing is that we finally opened up in 2023 Theo's 529 academic savings plan to pay for his college or whatever he wants to do. But it was a little touch and go there. I didn't know if I was going to get it open in 2023, but we did. 
And it's now $122 higher than it was when we started. That's awesome. I think every kid should have that. And I love that you said we finally opened it as if he was even a year old, which he is not. <laughs> You're way ahead of the game, buddy. Good job. Well, for like seven or eight months, it was looming over me. Like, got to do it. Got to do it. That's awesome. um, so also just a reminder that uh, we have a newsletter for Artistic Finance at artisticfinance.com slash newsletter. Nicole writes it. I like it. The other thing, if you want to find out more about Phi Club, you can do that at artisticfinance.com slash club. Um, and we will put what we're reading next or what's going on there. Um, and also, Amy has the Lobolux newsletter, um, which you can sign up by going to her Instagram bio at Utopia Dreamscape. I will add as well that um, Utopia Dreamscape is getting eaten by Lobolux Design. So there will be some rebranding in 2024 and a lot of really exciting things will be brought to the table coming up. Amazing. And Maitre, do you have any exciting 2024 plans or things we should all know about? I am continuing to grow my business with Spotify. So if you're looking for some help with portfolio management or anything like this and getting started I'm on the path to, to building up investments. I'm a Colorado registered investment advisor and I have limitations on how many clients I can help outside of the state of Colorado, but I do have a small allocation um, for clients in, um, in different states. So if you are interested in starting to fill that investment portfolio, specifically um, if you have an interest in, in getting individual bonds and into your portfolio, um, feel free to reach out. Um, and I'd be happy to have a chat with you and see if there's an opportunity to work together. So I've got my first few clients um, oil the wheels <laughs> um, on, on getting the business kind of off the ground. Um, and so uh, excited to continue scaling that um, in Colorado and beyond. So yay! thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Amy and Ethan, for the opportunity to talk about this really informative book. That's it for this week's episode. What do you think of our takeaways from the money manual? Do you want to go pick up a copy and read it? Let us know on the socials at artistic finance at official Amy D Lux or at liquidify. You can also find us on LinkedIn. Now links to us and everything that we talked about is in the show notes, including a link to the book. So if you want to purchase that book, I would appreciate you using our affiliate link, which gives us a portion of the sale. I'm not going to give my takeaways from the episode because we went a little long, but there are a couple add-ons and things that I want to share. So the first thing that is related to the book, and that is something that came up that we didn't talk about, and it's a savings vehicle called an IDA, an Individual Development Account. Now, it's a type of savings account that's designed to help low-income individuals build assets and achieve financial stability. Now, I had never heard of this, but the beauty of it is that the money you put in is matched depending on the state, but it could be matched one for one or even two to one. And it's a federal program. So those funds are coming from the Fed, but you have to uh, apply through the state level. Now it doesn't come easy, but it also doesn't come difficultly either. So now the accounts are only open one to three years. And the idea being that you use them while you're low income and then grow out of them. The money can only be used for education, a first home purchase, or to start a business, which since artists are business, I feel like that is not much of a stretch. <laughs> you are required to attend free financial literacy courses that are related to the savings goal you decide. So if you're wanting to use the money for education, your financial literacy courses reflect that. Or if you want to use it for a home, they focus on that. 
Lastly, your income has to be low, often two times the federal poverty level. For 2024, the poverty level is $15,000 for an individual or $20,000 for a household of two. So two times that is $30,000 or $40,000. Now, hopefully that doesn't apply to many of our listeners, but frankly, a career in the arts, especially right out of school, generates yearly income that is potentially below these levels. So if you earn $30,000 or less, search for an IDA in your state because you can get an account that will match funds one-to-one. And of course, check your state because it's potential that the limit is even higher for a place like New York or New Jersey. Again, it's a lot of legwork to get it, but you know, coming with the benefit of free financial courses is not a bad thing. So I looked this up for Arizona, which is the state I'm currently living in. And yes, if you are an individual making $30,200 or less, you can open up an IDA. Uh, and Arizona offers a two-to-one match. So they have an example on their website. If you put $50 into your IDA for six months for a total of $300, Arizona will match it two times, which is $600, which means you'll end up with $900 at the end of six months. Now, the biggest issue that I've found with IDAs, because of course I'd never heard of them, so I went and looked them up, and that is that they are hard to find. Now, they're sponsored by individual financial institutions, and you have to apply for them through there. So I looked up, how do you open one in Arizona? And after 45 minutes of scrolling through the internet, the only one I found was one for students to save for education. And that was through Vantage West Credit Union. And it wasn't called an IDA, it was called Earn to Learn. Now, Affinity Credit Union, I found online, said they offered them, but I couldn't find a way to apply. So it seems like this is a call the credit union and ask type of situation. And seeing how hard it was for me to find a way to apply for one of these, I can understand why I've never heard of them. (laughs) Okay, so that's it for IDAs. Okay, next thing, and this is a big thing for me, in our Financial Independence Club meetings last year, one of the books talked at nauseam about the importance of putting your cash savings into a high interest savings account. The reason for this is obvious, and that it's because everyday bank accounts pay out at basically a zero interest rate, which means Nicole and I in the last 10 years have earned a total of less than $10 in interest in all of our savings and checkings accounts. So back in 2023, after one of our financial independence episodes, I finally went and opened a high interest savings account. It started at 4%, but with the Fed's interest rates rising throughout the years, it's now at 5.1% interest rate. Nicole and I transferred over our various checkings and savings accounts. We didn't close any of our bank accounts, but now we only keep minimums in them. Or if we have a monthly activity like the rent going out or a car payment, we'll keep you know enough money plus more to cover those. So our final bank statement of 2023 lists the total interest that we earned for the year. That amount is $3,659.43. Just from interest. Is that insane or is that insane? (laughs) So I'm not saying that artistic finance has improved anyone's finances, but my own finances have improved just by listening to my own show. (laughs) Anyway, so if you're listening and you still haven't opened up a high interest savings account, go do it. Because by the end of the year, you'll have five cents for every dollar that's sitting in the account. So if you have $1,000 sitting in an account, you will have $50 at the end of the year. 
If you have an account with $10,000 sitting in it, you will have $500 at the end of the year. And if you have a mere $100,000 sitting in an account or spread out over a bunch of accounts that you can put into one account, you will have $5,000 at the end of 2024. So all I'm saying is just do it. Anyway, but this is separate from your investments. This is for the cash that you keep around for emergencies or daily expenses or saving for a big purchase. Now, it took me five minutes to set up the account online, and it maybe took another hour to link all of our bank accounts. But now we have $3,600 more just because I took that hour on the computer and I didn't change anything about our finances except for where it was stored, like what account it was in. So anyway, I don't endorse our bank, but I want to let you know who we use. We use Basque Bank. B-A-S-K. It's an online bank. And I went with them because when I searched online, they were the highest interest rate with no minimum or the lowest minimum. Now at the time, Marcus Bank did offer a higher interest rate and they probably still offer a higher interest rate, but they required a high minimum. And I have a phobia about accounts with required minimums because I've been fined in the past for going below that minimum. So that is why I went with Basque Bank. Okay. Another thing I want to share, and that comes from a previous guest, Mark Santos. He emailed me at the end of 2023, and I'm just going to read the email verbatim. Hi, Ethan. Merry Christmas to you, Nicole, and Theo. I was just looking at my end-of-year credit card rewards, and I wanted to share with you. I shifted almost all of my credit card usage to the Fidelity Rewards Visa. It gives 2% back on all purchases, and the rewards can be placed in any combination of five different accounts. I selected a traditional IRA. Roth was not an option. Over the past year, my average monthly reward benefit was $67, which means this year I have over $800 of free money added to an IRA. That's pretty good considering we've recommended people starting with $5 a month on auto pay. Additionally, even with the ups and downs of the market, I have an overall gain of 12% on that free money. It will get taxed upon withdrawal, but it's free money after all. All the best, Mark. All right, that is absolutely amazing. Now, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you'll know that I despise credit card rewards. I find them frustrating because it reminds me that everything in life is marked up in price just so credit card companies can offer perks like points. But as Mark points out, we can't get away from them, so we might as well put them to use. And one of those uses is getting a credit card that gives you the option to add them to an IRA. Now, what I love about this option is that Nicole and I have a bunch of points sitting around not doing anything. And one day we're going to use them for travel or we'll cash them out or we'll use them to pay our credit card bill. But they've been sitting there for 10 years doing nothing. They just exist in the ether of the computer credit card online website. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But if we did what Mark suggests and have them automatically go into an IRA or a high interest savings account, they start building up thanks to compound interest. And the beauty of that is that there's a velocity of money that happens automatically. So as soon as your statement comes out, that money is already in the market and compounding. So if you're like me and you just let those credit card points sit there thinking one day I'm going to use them, consider looking to see if you have the option to put them in an IRA or an investment account or anywhere that they will turn into cash and then turn into an investment that will grow. 
The final thing today, I mentioned professional subscriptions and our LDI episode. That will be out soon, and it was an awesome discussion. We are already forming plans for this year's LDI, so if you're able to get free December 8th through 10th, book your trip to Las Vegas to record live with us. And finally, if you're watching this on YouTube, notice my hair. (laughs) I've made it look as good as possible, but this weekend something happened that has never happened before. I got a haircut, but it was so bad that after this episode, I'm going to go get another haircut. Yes, I'm going to go pay twice (laughs) for one haircut (laughs) Uh, because I've survived through some pretty bad haircuts here and there, always blaming myself for not communicating what I wanted. I still blame myself for this one, but this time it is just so bad uh, that I had to say, hey, this looks great, and then leave. And now I'm going to go somewhere else and salvage it. I don't know if that has ever happened to you, but it seems so ridiculous. Anyway, on that note, here's our dad joke to end the episode. And this is because we were talking about shopping triggers and getting through those moments of spending or quitting smoking and getting yourself through those moments of craving. So the premise of this joke is that I have kleptomania, which I do. But when it gets bad, I take something for it. That's it for today. Until next time break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.